It's often said the more things change, the more they stay the same. And in these unprecedented times, businesses are having to consider radical change if they want to stay at the same levels of success and profitability and then go on to improve them. And one man believes that incorporating so-called design thinking into the decision-making process is going to be a key element in a company's transformation and ultimately its survival. He is Pietro Micheli, Professor of Business Performance and Innovation here at Warwick Business School. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, he'll be telling us how business might go about this necessary process of reinvention. He joins me now on a telephone link, and Professor, rather basic things first. We all know what pressures are on individuals just now in terms of isolation, uncertainty and stress. Remind us what the particular pressures are on business. For many, many businesses, it's just ensuring business continuity, so just continuing to survive. For many other businesses, there is a big question around what is the business going to be after we go back to the new normal, if you want. And so one way to think about this is, well, in a positive way at least, is that for many organizations, uh, private, uh, public and not-for-profit, this may be an opportunity to reevaluate some of the things that they've been doing and then try to do something different. But are the business leaders, the managers, the CEOs prepared to do that? Or are they just concentrating on surviving? Well, uh, I suppose uh, more of the latter in the sense that for many people, the main preoccupation is just to keep surviving. That is in general, of course. Then there will be other businesses, you know, logistics company, for example, may do quite well at the moment. But uh, generally speaking, for many people, it's just to keep going. And so, you know, one of the key words will be being resilient, being capable of somewhat adapting, but uh, essentially keeping on the same course. From my perspective, being interested in innovation, then... I could say that uh, hopefully for some people this will also be an opportunity to reconsider some of the assumptions, the basis of what that organization provided. And particularly in the private sector, there may be uh, quite a lot of change that in a way is sped up by this crisis, uh, whether it is through technology or something else. Well, we'll look at those in a moment, but right from the outset, you seem to be saying what a lot of your colleagues are saying to me, that as bad as the pandemic is, it's also throwing up opportunities alongside the hazards. Absolutely, yes. I mean, to some extent, it's uh, almost by chance in the sense that uh, there may be changes brought about even simply by the fact that uh, uh, people cannot travel to work. Then for a lot of people, just working remotely becomes almost uh, a normality when in the past this may not have been considered before. So I know quite a lot of companies that now have decided that, uh, you know, hot desking is definitely much more acceptable. In fact, they're going to save money on uh, rental costs and uh, possibly not investing in building uh, new infrastructure just to keep people in. So that would be one way. But then from a more kind of, you know, the rationale of what the organization is trying to do, then, of course, this could also give you an opportunity. I mean, one tries to look at the positives in a negative scenario. So the current situation is definitely a negative one, uh, but that may also have uh, positive repercussions. But is this a personality thing in that it's going to test personal qualities of leadership, of courage, of resolve, of boldness, when considering changing things that have worked well in the past? 
Well, absolutely. But, um, you know, I'm not a leadership expert, but uh, I do know that uh, good leaders are the ones that can give sense to situations that uh, are full of ambiguity. And so, yes, you know, you would expect this to come from real leaders, not just people that get the higher paycheck, so to speak, uh, but people that actually have the capacity to be leaders. You would expect that. Now, are many people going to do that? Uh, Possibly not. But you would expect that this is not just, you know, some kind of a break in the middle of a constant flow, but this could be a discontinuity, as in you may actually start to think and do different things. So this may come. When we talk about leaders, of course, it's not just individuals uh, at the top, but it can be a variety of individuals that pull together. So from a collective point of view, yes, that could happen. Now, it's all very well talking about business leaders re-examining their approach, what kind of customers they serve and the technology they use. But what does all that mean in practice for them? You mentioned before um, the fact of being bold. Absolutely. So this is about the capacity to, first of all, understand that there are a lot of things that we don't discuss normally because they're taken for granted, either because the company was funded in a certain way or has been run in a certain way or it has interacted with its customers in a certain way, whatever. But those assumptions sometimes become somewhat fossilized, if you want, and they become almost a drag. So we think that the only way to sell this product is through this channel. The only way to raise our customers is this. In fact, our customers are only of that type and so on and so forth. So in practice, it's very much about the capacity to make those assumptions emerge to start with. And that's not something that comes to us naturally because we tend to rely on those assumptions. They're almost like truths. And so challenging those truths is definitely not easy. In your experience, are people geared up for these changes right now? Or is it all taking them by surprise? Well, I suppose that it's taking them by surprise, but um, this kind of idea that for many organizations in many different sectors, you cannot just think about business as usual in a kind of incremental way. This is something that, uh, you know, this idea that we need to challenge assumptions and stuff like that, uh, it's, not, it's not just because of COVID-19. You know, uh, there's plenty of sectors that have seen lots of changes and shifts that have been quite dramatic over the past years. So it's not that, uh, I mean, the pandemic has probably accelerated this uh, in the sense of disruption. But the fact that banks are being challenged by fintech companies, that pharmaceutical companies, as we know, looking at vaccines, for example, have a process of product development that is too slow. Uh, the fact that um, you know, automotive firms, travel companies, and so on, are being challenged by people that capture the value of what they create rather than them. So there are lots of things that have happened over the past years that have, should have at least pushed Uh, business leaders seem to think, okay, now probably we need to reconsider what we are here to do. As you say, the COVID crisis has accelerated some changes that were already underway. In what way are these changes a response to what's being called the fourth industrial revolution? Well, so we hope uh, that part of that fourth industrial revolution is going to become, again, a little bit accelerated when people can start to make further investments in that. So, the fact of, for example, investing in the Industry 4.0, in artificial intelligence, machine learning. So whatever falls under that umbrella, those kind of uh, technology-enabled transformations, hopefully, in certain sectors, will be sped up because we will understand that uh, it's the best way to do it in certain areas. Not in all, but that can be part of the story. Now, there have been some good successes, 
but most of the companies that are cited around this, most of them, not all, but most of them, tend to be what we call digital natives. So people that have grown with that, it's much more difficult for established firms to really go full on with the so-called fourth industrial revolution and with the idea of really managing and leading the organization in quite different ways. Now, you talk of established businesses from car manufacturers to banks, altering their approach, quote, from a supply chain to an ecosystem. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so these are a bit buzzwords perhaps, but um, in essence, uh, a supply chain is the fact that you establish relationships with other firms in a way that, uh, you know, some, to some extent at least, for example, if you are a car manufacturer, you may control and that leads to the creation of a product. You have contracts with these people, you work with them, and so on. You may have more transactional relationship or more established, uh, more intimate, if you want, relationships, but it's still something that is more or less codified and formalized in some way. The idea of an ecosystem, it's much more loose and something that is becoming a buzzword at the moment. How much people really do that is a bit of a different story, but uh, the point is that very often, the most important partners that you may have are not within your supply chain because you don't work with them because they're different from you. And so maybe, you know, you may be an appliance firm. And so, of course, you have you make white goods and you may procure parts from uh, suppliers and so on and so forth. But actually, the most important thing for you now is to to work more intensely with people that do all sorts of things in related to the so-called internet of things, so how to make your devices connected, and these people may not belong to your industry. They may come from entirely different places. And so an ecosystem is the fact that these people don't depend on you, nor you depend on them, but you create working arrangements to then bring about some form of service or product to the customer, but not in a way that is so integrated and so formalized as it is in a supply chain, for example. Now, you've described this change in mindset and working practices as being part of the design thinking process. Could you just unpack that and explain how you build design thinking into the running of a company? Right. So uh, design thinking is, is another term that is used quite a bit these days and it has been now for probably a decade. And the roots of the term uh, come from quite far from the whole idea of design science, which is trying to introduce something that improves the situation or the condition of a user, but that's very vague. So what it means in reality today is the fact of having an approach that is very user-centered, so tries to, so the benefit is for a user, and I use the word user intentionally, so not, not a customer necessarily, but somebody that uses a product or a service. Uh, but it does so in a way that is not necessarily the same as a typical management approach. And so there are certain characteristics. So let me just tell you a couple. So one of them is the fact that this approach of design thinking starts with the idea that uh, you, you don't do this in a sequence, but you do everything through iteration. So it's backwards and forwards. So if you draw it, it doesn't look like a funnel, but it looks like a spiral, if you want. So essentially, you go back and forth and and try to understand what the user may want. You test it and you try it again and again and again. So it's very cyclical, if you want. And it's very much geared up with the idea of we need to try and find solutions to problems from a user perspective. And as much as this sounds a bit trivial, because people have talked about this for a long time, the way this happens is very different from what companies normally do.
But the iterative process, as you put it, exploring, perhaps failing and starting again, re-exploring, redesigning, going back and forth, is expensive and time-consuming. Is it a luxury that people can't afford when mere survival is key? Uh, well, no, it's actually the other way around. <laughs> because if you don't do it, then you're out. If you don't go through the cycles, then essentially you're just going to be suffering slowly of a slow death, so to speak. So if, look at airlines. I mean, airlines are in a terrible position. When they come back into business in some way, if they only provide the airline service, the margins that they've always had has always been very tiny, whichever type of airline you're talking about. And, uh, and frankly, there is no future for organizations that the only thing that they do, as much as it's complex, but the only thing that they do is to fly you from A to B. This, model, this business model is unsustainable. So if airlines are not prepared to look around and rethink what they do, there is no much future. And if you look at traditional retail banking, it's the same. If you look at uh, car manufacturers, uh, it's the same. So there's plenty of organizations that I've worked with where these questions of we need to try and look at things differently, we need to reassess our assumptions, we need to be iterative and quicker in getting feedback, those things almost have become a necessity. So, yeah, maybe for now there is a moment of just keeping you know, the boat afloat, so to speak, but sooner or later these questions have got to be addressed. Now, it may be a naive question, but don't companies just do the things that their expertise has led them to do in the first place? I mean, airlines fly people. Automotive businesses make cars. Neither of them do hospitality, and it's a bit of a stretch expecting them to do it. Well, so, for example, the range of products and services that you provide and to whom, those, of course, can change. And so if you are an airline, you can start to provide lots of extra services that are related to travel, but they're not necessarily related to a flight. So, for example, you can start to become a travel agency, and instead of just giving the options of hiring a car at a certain destination or what have you, you become the provider of that. So you integrate a range of services that you've never provided before. So that would be one way to do it. Uh, for a car manufacturer, is the fact that you don't only make the car, but you can get much more into, for example, providing a service of car usage, especially in urban areas, uh, maybe travel in general. So, you know, you strike deals with, uh, I don't know, uh, train companies, airlines themselves, and so on and so forth, and you start to create a wider proposition of what is it that you provide. For, for many companies, that's the, really the only way to make the, the business viable, because if you look at their business results, they've not been that good for a long time. But does a company do it itself or recruit an external consultancy to do this sort of radical thinking for them? Well, so going back to your previous question, so one way to do it is to start to build an ecosystem. So you start to create a network of people where you may be the, the focal firm, as they say, so the main, the protagonist, if you want, of, uh, of the play or not. Uh, but it's essentially trying to understand uh, who is it that you want to work with because, as you, you're saying, many of the things that you may end up doing and or providing, you don't have the capability to do because you're not set up that way. You know, if you are a car company, you probably, uh, you know, employ lots of uh, mechanical engineers. But then do you have a lot of software engineers? Have you got the right people to work on, uh, you know, the data you may provide or not? So these people may not be with you, but they may work for you. 
uh, in a way from, you know, from an external point of view. You may work with them as much as you're not going to become a train company, but you can definitely work with uh, companies that provide the train service, so to speak, and that becomes part of their wider offering. But won't it take time to retool? And in that time, conventional income from conventional operations will go down. Well, not necessarily. I mean, part of that may stay the same. So as an airline, you can still sell tickets, as you do, uh, but at the same time, you need to find uh, extra forms of revenue and fairly quickly. So, you know, you need to invest into that. Now, how you do that, that's a different story. You can create a separate business. You can uh, spin out something. uh, You can keep it inside the firm. You can have a different brand. I mean, there are lots of different ways in which you can do it. And innovation is not a certainty. You know, all of this is risky. I'm not saying that this is easy, nor that this is certain. But what is certain is that, well, if you look at the past, you know, decade or so, it's impossible that these companies will essentially be the same within the next 10, 15 years. It's just impossible. Now, you suggest it might also mean a change in systems and structures. Might it mean changes in management styles too? Swapping a lead from the front action man or woman approach to a more collaborative, less, my word, macho approach? Um, it could be. Leadership styles for these may vary. It depends. I mean, to some extent, you need to have clear messages and a very strong, what we call, capacity to give sense to what's going on. And so that needs to be there. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you have the typical heroical leadership of somebody, you know, on a horse uh, with a sword and a a shield. But uh, the idea is to have a clear message. At the same time, you need to also have this capacity to work with others that you don't necessarily control. And that's not easy because most companies work that way. They're used to that. So I'm not saying that you should relinquish entirely your control of what's going on but it's not the same as uh, controlling an integrated supply chain. You describe a first step in the direction of all this as adopting a what-if approach. How would that work? Yes, so so the idea of asking what-if type of questions is one of the uh, the roots of this design thinking approach, which is to say, instead of asking what is it that you have and how you can improve it, you can try to think about this in a more imaginative way, if you want. The academic jargon for this is terrible, but in technical terms, it's called abductive reasoning, which means instead of thinking of what there is or what you're trying to test, you're trying to imagine a future scenario and then try to understand what is the quickest way to get there. So, for example, what if, instead of just being a bank, we could also provide other type of services? So that is a what-if type of question. What if, instead of making products, we could also accompany these products with services. You know, what if instead of trading with this firm, we could actually start to trade with other types of firms? So that is the kind of, that's one of the ways to kick off this kind of creation of ideas about alternatives or things that we can do alongside the business perhaps, but that are not the same as the business as usual. And you quote one successful model, one particular company, the Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank. Yes, so this is, um, you know, there's plenty of examples that people use, and very often they're kind of uh, second, third hand about Apple and the like. One of the examples that I've seen personally that I've quite liked, it is that bank and and the fact that they decided to invest into creating a different brand uh, called B, so the letter B. Now the brand is actually Virgin Money because they've come together. But their idea was very much about how can we create something that 
revives, if you want, our business, which was kind of declining, and we can do this in an innovative way. And so instead of investing in loads of uh, branches that now we don't really use anymore, they only created three. They did uh, a great job at the interior design, so they don't look like bank branches. They look more like, again, Apple stores and the like, but it's a very different feel. And the type of service that is provided is very different. So it's not just the typical traditional simple service of, I don't know, opening a bank account or cashing a check-in, that, that stuff you can do online. Uh, but it's more about providing different types of advice and trying to help people manage their finances or, and companies as well. And that's quite an imaginative way of doing it, which is definitely rooted in the design thinking approach. But aren't there going to be knock-on effects for the companies already doing what the innovators are planning to do? In other words, if a bank is now offering advice, what do the existing financial advisors do? If an airline is now offering hospitality, what does a hospitality company do? <laughs> they will probably have to change <laughs> as well. People working in retail banking, a lot of them are worried about Amazon becoming a, a retail banking operation. So, you know, yeah, there's plenty of examples of, of companies that uh, have suffered the competition coming from, you know, non-traditional competitors, if you like. And, uh, yeah, what happens is that those businesses may have to change as well. They may have. We don't know. Uh, this is all speculative to some extent. But uh, we do know that if at some point, for example, wealth management, just to change, uh, becomes something that is much more popular, it is becoming now, then maybe the traditional providers of that will have to change as well. And the same might be about, um, you know, forms of transport and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Even just simple products that we may buy may become something much bigger or different just because of the ways in which they are proposed as part of a wider package. And some of this thinking is encapsulated in one particular product, the washing machine. Absolutely, because, again, if you go back to this idea of design thinking and being user-centered, user-centered means that uh, you're trying to make something better from a user point of view, so something that is easier to operate, easier to understand, uh, easier to access, and so on and so forth. And, and so, you know, my washing machine has got 24 different programs. Uh, more than half of them, I don't even know what they mean. So do we really need 24 washing programs? Maybe not. But that's a typical approach taken from a provider point of view, which is if, if you can create 24 programs, then why not? Whereas from a user point of view, maybe you don't need 24, maybe you need only five or 10, because that makes your experience of using the machine a lot easier. And if you think about this in, in many simple contexts, uh, things are changing, whether it's uh, you know, uh, a washing machine or remote control or what have you. And certainly in, uh, you know, personal computers and phones and so on, things have become a lot easier to do. And to some extent, the user-centeredness means that they have to become intuitive. You don't need to read a manual that is 50 pages long. So to use the cliché, it's a question of putting yourself in your customer's shoes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is not easy to do because, you know, many times you can probably put yourself in your own shoes, but not necessarily in the shoes of others. So, you know, if I think about the experience of Mrs. Smith, who is uh, eight years old and lives on her own and needs to use internet banking, I am not Mrs. Smith and I'm not eight years old. So to try to understand what this person does and what this person experiences, I cannot pretend to be herself. If I ask her, it's very likely that she's going to give me answers that make her feel that she's giving me the right answer, so to speak. So the best way to do it is to observe. 
you just try and observe what happens to Mrs. Smith in her home when she tries to use internet banking. And so if you want, this is a, you've got a collection of tools, if you want, that belong to the family of ethnographic tools, and these are the ones that you use. You don't use surveys, you don't use focus groups, and so on and so forth. You try and go and see what happens in the context of that individual, what that individual experiences that product or service. And your contention, of course, is that people need to start thinking about all this now. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there are some companies that we as customers and users ourselves, we can see that they've put a lot of thought in, and we can definitely think of many other organizations that have not thought about that at all. Uh, There is a big difference. You can see it. So, you know, I remember years ago reading a book about this and saying that sometimes we as users, we feel stupid, but perhaps it's not our fault. It's the fault of the people that made those products or services. And it's true. In many instances, the type of things that we've got around us are badly conceived because they don't really think about the experience of using something. They only think about the technicality of making something, which is quite different. So a user-centered perspective is very much about trying to make the life of the user better, not just giving to the user anything that we can deliver. That's quite a different story. So it goes from, you know, you may only need five, ten programs on your washing machine that are clearly signposted, and there is a clear reason of why to use one or the other, versus giving you 24 that are not explained, and you need to go through a manual of 50 pages. That's quite different. And you can think about this in virtually any setting. And is it your experience that at the higher echelons of business, the CEOs are actually thinking this way? Or is it merely confined to business school academics? <laughs> um, well, it should become more of a subject matter of business schools in any case. But uh, no, I think that um, there is often, a, again, an assumption of we deliver to the customer uh, as much as we can. There is not enough of an understanding of what is good for the user really versus what is it that we can do. Uh, these are, again, and, and from, a, you know, from a leadership perspective, I think that this either is not particularly understood or is seen as a, as a technical detail for people that are not at that level. In other words, it will be for your engineers, designers, and marketers on the ground, whereas it's not true. I mean, there are companies that have this kind of user-centered approach as part of their culture. You can definitely see it. And there are the ones that don't. And those that don't um, may compete on other bases, like advertising or what have you, uh, but they certainly don't have that kind of ethos. Whereas other, other ones, they definitely do. And those are the products that perhaps, well, certainly I, enjoy buying. And uh, they are simpler to use. They are clearly thought through from a user perspective and so on. And I get increasingly cross when I have problems or something that doesn't work and I need to go online and scroll through, again, pages and pages of manuals. And presumably speed and the willingness to adapt will be key to surviving in whatever the new normal turns out to be. You're right. It is about speed, but it's also the capacity to go backwards and forwards. So one other thing that we're very bad at is the fact of recognizing that perhaps our first idea was not great and maybe we need to fine-tune or change or entirely scrap it. And this is something that we tend not to do. We tend to be very wedded to our own idea, singular one, the first one, and then just to try to get that through. So, no, it's very much about we try things out as early as we can, not to validate, but to try and see what kind of learning we can get out of it. And then if, if the feedback is positive or negative and so on, we move on. 
this is very different from many approaches that are very established in companies, which are completely different. You know, for example, prototypes that we know. I mean, prototyping is is very old. It's not that it's come. It's it's a recent thing. But most prototyping is done to validate. So it's just to check that the thing functions in some way. Prototyping for development is different because it's more about let's try to make something up as quickly as we can so that people can see it and we can start to get some comments and feedback and changes on it as opposed to let's make it almost perfect and if we get the tick off, then off we go, we just make it. But it's all very well talking about testing and refining and getting feedback and not necessarily waiting for a finished product to be quote-unquote perfected. But I don't want to waste my money on a prototype only to see a better model coming out a year later, so I'll wait. And shouldn't the companies wait too until the finished model is on the assembly line? Uh, not really, no, because uh, it's, again, it's the other way around. The time that it takes you to go through various stages of prototyping quickly is actually smaller than it takes you to go from the specifications to the end. And that is true in anything. I mean, it's from uh, computer programming, where they have this waterfall processes that goes from specifications to delivery, as it is in uh, production systems. It's the same. So actually, counterintuitively, perhaps, the fact that you prototype takes you less because you can try things out quicker, and then you develop them faster. Also, it de-risks the project. Can you imagine? I mean, one thing is to mock up. We talk a lot about uh, healthcare these days, of course. And, uh, you know, to mock up a hospital, it takes you two weeks. Okay, people have done this in many countries. And in two weeks, through cardboard and uh, various other things, you can essentially build a hospital. Of course, it's not a functioning hospital, but you can see how, uh, you know, patients would flow around, how families would stay in a place or another, where you would store equipment and so on and so forth. Now, in many cases, people don't do that. And so what they do, they build a hospital, and it takes years, only to realize down the line that there may have been a fault or something has changed. And at that point, what do you do? Your investment is gone. You know, there is no way you're going to rebuild a hospital. It's much better to try it out and see different configurations before you actually make it rather than uh, going from a drawing into the making of it, and then you discover that you put the maternity ward on the first floor, like we have in Warwick Hospital. <laughs> and then at that point, there's nothing you can do about it. And at the risk of bringing things to a conclusion on a negative note, what happens if people don't incorporate design thinking into their operations? Um, I mean, so many companies have done well without design thinking, so this is not a cure to all ills. At the same time, there are some principles, if you want, the one of focusing on user needs, uh, the principle of iterating early on, the fact of collaborating with different partners. I mean, these, these elements are not going to go away. So the risk is that, yeah, I mean, if you are in a sector where you have a very strong position, you're almost in a monopoly with a very strong profits and so on, there are not that many. But if you are in that situation, then, yeah, I mean, you don't have to reassess your assumptions and do what ifs and so on and so forth, perhaps. But for many other people, you do. And so even if you don't do the full-blown approach and process, you still have to consider some of these points because otherwise, yeah, it's a potentially slow or quick decline. And so there, there is an, you know, an important question to business leaders, going back to your earlier questions, about you know, are you ready to try to challenge yourself and reassess some of the things that you may have held as truths and try and think about what kind of thing you can do really different as opposed to just hoping that once the storm is over, so to speak, 
you can just go back and do what you did before. So what sort of commercial landscape do you foresee in the future? And what changes will people have to make to deal with those future circumstances? Well, that's it's a complex question. I mean, it, it depends also on what kind of areas we're talking about. But generally speaking, well, you know, to some extent, hopefully, there will be quite a lot of uh, rethinking around what is it that can be provided or should be provided. I would say that there's going to be a lot more uh, collaboration between parties that have not collaborated before, uh, even just because they have to. And to some extent, uh, well, hopefully, and that's the, the, one of the primary points about design thinking, we as users, because we use a lot of products and services every day, will benefit from that because there is a clear understanding of user needs, then those things are going to be built for us as opposed to just, you know, technological progress that uh, gives us something that we don't necessarily have to do anything with. So, finally, in your view, design thinking is gaining traction? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, the, the good side of this is that it's becoming much more popular. Personally, I've run a number of workshops, I've worked with companies, I've studied them and so on, and I've seen increasing interest in all of this. The only caveat to that is that, you know, because we've said that some of these things are not exactly the same as business as usual, the risk is that in the kind of digestion process, if you want, design thinking turns into just business as usual with a different label. And that is the main risk that I see. So in terms of being becoming more popular, I'm confident that it will become more popular, and it is becoming more popular. Uh, the risk is that it gets bastardized, and effectively, instead of really focusing on user needs, we do some surveys, uh, kind of market research, as we did before. Instead of iterating to really gain the learning, we iterate in the sense of doing one pilot and then off we go. So there is a lot more depth than just simple, practical ways of doing something. You know, it does ask us to reassess a lot of our practices. And if we do that, I think that there are lots of benefits. Uh, if we don't, then it doesn't make much difference. Pietro, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Pietro Micheli, Professor of Business Performance and Innovation at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.